You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Akila Johnson, a national health reporter here at The Post. Joining me today to talk about her organization and the path forward to improving maternal health is Adrian Nickerson, CEO of ULA. Adrian, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We are very happy to have you with us. So before we get into what ULA does, let's talk about the genesis story of how ULA came about. Tell us a little bit about the creation of ULA. I think in many ways, ULA is the company I've wanted to build my whole career. Um, and I say that because I started off getting a master's in global health focused on sexual reproductive health. Um, and sort of in starting a company, you ask yourself a lot, like, why why do this? Because it is a crazy journey. And I think a lot of my initial passion for the space comes from growing up as one of four with three brothers. Um, and so I'd say I've always been sort of uniquely attuned to things that are different for women um, because I'm so used to sort of watching my brother's experiences in this world. And so it's an area I've loved, but I left grad school thinking, wow, so often this is the world, frankly, of like politics in the US um, and not quite sure how I was going to be able to build something that had an impact. And so I left grad school saying, like, if I'm going to be able to do anything um, in this space, like I really need to understand sort of the business side of it, um, since that seems to dominate so often how things get paid for, what gets built. Um, and so I left and I, I spent some time doing healthcare consulting, working with large health systems and insurers. Um, and I spent, spent some time actually working at a large health system in Long Island called Northwell. Um, and then actually building something in cancer. And so finally, when I got to my 30s and on a very personal level, got married and started thinking about having kids, I probably like thought about women's health again in a, a way that I hadn't been able to focus since grad school um, and was honestly floored to hear the experiences that other women were having as I was asking friends or talking um, to other women about what prenatal care, what birth looked like. And honestly, they described something that I'd say, uh, at best felt like a really impersonal and cookie cutter and kind of like factory line approach to care. And obviously it was something that felt really dangerous. Uh, it wasn't a system that I wanted to go through. Um, and so I felt like a sense of urgency to be able to build ULA, um, selfishly for myself and then obviously for lots of other women and birthing people who needed a better experience and felt like at the core of what was broken um, and we could, what we could fix at ULA was a, a care model problem, which we, we built the wrong system to deliver maternity care in this country. And so as you're thinking about building another system, I'm, I'm curious about the name. How, did, how does ULA, you know, what, t- tell us what that means and how that is like part of the Genesis story as well. So in building ULA, it was really important to us to create an experience that centered women's voices in their care, Um, because that's so often what doesn't happen. And in maternity care in particular, there's so much of a focus sometimes on the baby at the expense of the mother. Um, And so we picked the name ULA because it pays homage to doulas. And they're the one person, if you don't know, whose sort of entire job it is in uh, the room, so to speak, or the delivery room to advocate for the mother or the birthing person. Um, And so we loved sort of paying homage to that in um, the company's name. We will get to doulas soon in this conversation. Don't you worry. That is, we we will 
go over that uh, that territory. But first, I wanted to kind of go back to something that was noted in the intro video, and that is that as soon as you opened your first location, you all were at capacity within three months, right? And so I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit more about the ULA model. You know, you'd mentioned that you all are trying to break out of this kind of cookie cutter approach to maternal care. So what do folks get when they come to ULA? How do you all stand out from hospitals and other birthing centers? Um, at the core, what we built was, I say, a collaborative care model. So you want to be able to have the sort of the best of midwifery and obstetrics coming together. Um, and so that means you're going to get a team-based approach to care. Majority of women are going to see midwives, but if they have something that means that they're a little bit riskier and they need a consult, they don't have to go outside the system somewhere else to have it. We have OBGYNs and even maternal fetal medicine specialists who are part of that core care team um, to take care of women during pregnancy. And then in between appointments, we have this wonderful remote care team that is staffed by care coordinators who are usually doulas by background and training, um, RNs, NPs. And so you have a lot more touch points between visits. I say a lot of times that you know pregnancy doesn't happen in just 14 discrete moments over nine months. It happens in all the moments in between and definitely uh, after they send you home with that baby. Um, and so having those additional connections to your care team between visits is so important. They're going to get connection to sort of classes and community. And so extra education, um, peer support by other women for the people who are going through this same experience with them. Um, and so they really get a more robust and supportive approach to care. And then they're able to deliver at a high quality hospital where our providers um, sort of follow them in, catch the baby, so to speak, um, as we say for uh, midwives, and then uh, follow them along their journey. And so it does, your care and experience doesn't end with ULA at that sort of perfunctory six week visit. Um, we continue to offer additional support well into the, the first year of life after having a baby. The fourth trimester, you all are still very much involved, it sounds like. You know, it's not oh, yes. catch the we, baby we, six months, we're out. <laughs> yeah, we offer postpartum office hours that are facilitated by a lactation consultant and a doula from our team. Um, and we did them at first in person. And then with the Omicron wave, we moved it all to virtual care and saw a ton more adoption, which makes sense. Uh, if you've had a small kid, the idea of like packing up and getting all of your stuff together to make it into your doctor's office to get sort of connection and support in those first four weeks is really hard. And so People can continue to go to those classes for a year, for six months, for two visits. You know, it really is person by person, but we offer that support as a way to sort of extend um, the the care experience and support well in the four trimester. So who are the folks who are coming to seek out ULA? Talk to us about clients, patients. What term do you all use? Are these your are they your patients? Are they your clients? And, you know, are they age range, uh, economic range, demographics. Just tell us a little bit about who comes to ULA to, to give birth and seek parenting help. All sorts of folks come to ULA. I think going back to you, you mentioned that we got to full capacity in three months. And sometimes it's something we really highlight because I think there's this perception sometimes that midwifery care is like fringe or like it isn't something that every woman would want to choose. And we have, you know, everyone from, you know, your lawyers to your consultants down to uh, your hairdresser to your social worker. I mean, really, it cuts across the gamut of folks who say this is the care model that they're looking for. Um, and more and more really is what women are looking for, which is sort of best of both. They want connection to the known healthcare system that feels safe along with um, an approach that treats them like a whole person. 
Um, and so it really is a wide swath. I mean, in terms of demographics, about half of our patients identify as non-white. So about a quarter of that identifies black. Um, we are predominantly commercially insured, although about one in six rely on Medicaid who come through our doors. Um, we have about 10% who identify as LGBTQ. Um, and so we really do see a broad intersection that generally reflects the population in New York. And so talk to us about your clinicians, right? Because you quite often hear, particularly when it comes to um, disparate care and the, and the disparities that, that play out in maternal health, that it's really important that there's some racial concordance between yeah. you know, patients and their clinicians. So tell us about who are your clinicians and, and who, are, who are providing the care at ULA. So the majority of the folks who provide the care, I say we sort of have the, a, a flipped pyramid. If most people get give birth with an OB in this country and maybe 11% give birth with a midwife, um, it's sort of flipped at ULA. So the majority of the providers that you're gonna see if you come to ULA are midwifery, are our midwifery team because we really set out the midwifery model of care. Once again, you could see an OB, you could have um, an MFM consult in your care, just depending on the risk. In terms of the breakdown, I mean, you're right, racially concordant care has been proven time and time again to really improve outcomes. It's a challenge when the midwifery workforce is about 6% um, black identifying. Our provider breakout, sometimes I hate sharing it because it feels like it, it's sort of putting them into a box in a way that like uh, there's a lot more things that they bring to the table beyond obviously their identity, but about a quarter of our midwives identify as black, maybe about 40% more overall. Um, care team, so folks that are going to be interacting with the patients um, identify as non-white. And so talk a little bit, too, about um, the philosophical differences. You touched on it a little bit between midwifery and obstetrics and kind of what's the difference that one can expect in terms of types of care and the you know philosophical approach to birthing, difference between midwives and uh, obstetrics. And then separate than that, I want to talk about what what is a doula, because I think quite often people, you know, conflate doulas and midwives. So first, difference between doulas and OB. And then, I mean, sorry, hello. I just did it. Midwives and doulas, and then what midwives and OBs, and then what is a doula? Okay, uh, I'll do it. I'm not sure I'll do it in the right order, but I'll start That's off okay. with the between uh, midwives and OBs. What we sort of say is everyone needs a midwife, and some people need sort of an OB too. Um, midwives very much focus on an approach to pregnancy that says it's normal until it's not. So they're focused on sort of natural physiological birth. Um, where I'd say OBs are experts in sort of higher risk care and they're the surgeon you want available if you need an emergency C-section or something operative. And so we really think of sort of both bringing a different skill set to the table. Why we really have it like having midwives as part of our core care team is what they do and they do really well is build a trusted relationship with patients. They spend honestly more time um, with the patients and that's part of their ability to do that. They really uplift informed consent and autonomy in decision-making, um, something that I think is incredibly important for um, women in any healthcare setting, let alone um, sort of pregnancy and maternities to feel like they're really um, a part of the decision-making process. Um, and so they would say that they're complemented by OBs who are really specialists at more of that high risk or that surgical-based care, um, but both can deliver and sort of catch babies. And then I'll contrast that with, so midwives versus doulas. So a midwife is, you know, a trained clinician, 
right? Often many of our midwives, the majority of them have gone to nursing school first and they get that degree and then they go back for additional training um, in order to become a certified nurse midwife in particular. Um, they've often I mean, honestly caught more babies than your average OBGYN has because all they do is sort of in the business um, is focused on low risk birth and, and broader um, sort of support for women's health. Um, whereas your doula is going to be a trained patient advocate. So they're not a clinician by background. They're not going to give medical advice, but they are going to be a person who provides extra education, helps navigate to resources, both prenatally and postnatally, um, can honestly do some comfort and coping measures during labor and delivery. And then as an advocate um, to help you have another voice in the room. Once again, if anyone who's been through labor, it's a lot, it's intense. You're not always sort of firing on all cylinders and to have someone else in the room who knows what's important to you, who be communicating with the providers and other folks in the room is just a wonderful um, sort of benefit to have as well. You know, and so the CDC recently came out with a study not too long ago that was looking at respectful care and mm -hmm. um, how about 30% of the women in the U.S. who have given birth or people who have given birth in the U.S. say they have felt somehow disrespected or mistreated during the course of their care. And another 40% um, particularly of women of color, said they felt that they experienced discrimination while they were um, during pregnancy, during childbirth. And so, you know, you touched on trust and you touched on autonomy while we, mm -hmm. while you were kind of talking about some of these differences in um, st standards of care. And so I guess I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about bias in delivery and how bias in delivery and bias in um, pregnancy care, how that affects outcomes. It's a great question. I think, I mean, I don't know if I'm the expert in it, but what I'd say is like part of the reason why I think bias shows up is, or why it sort of impacts outcomes on some level is going back to sort of the trust piece, right? You need to trust that if you're raising a concern as a patient, that your provider is listening to you and hears you and believes you. Um, and like many things in medicine, there's going to be a lot of gray space and there's going to be a lot of areas where we don't perfectly know what to do. And so I think if you rely on sort of, or I guess in that space, it's inherent for sort of bias to show up for the ability to sort of ignore the patient who's screaming and saying, you know, this is wrong. This isn't what I should be experiencing and saying like, well, technically your levels look just right. Um, and so I think given that like medicine is always going to have some gray area, it is so important to build that like fundamental trust where when a patient speaks up and says, this isn't right for me, like I know my body, that the person on the other hand of it or on the other side of that conversation, first instinct is belief and trust. And, you know, inherently with a, a racist healthcare system, too often that isn't what what happens. Um, and going back to why do we think the midwifery model of care is so important is it's about building that foundation of trust. And you know, it's not perfect, right? We do a lot of work, even as an organization with our providers about um, bias in healthcare. How do we overcome that? How do we continue to train on it? We disaggregate our outcomes by race um, and ethnicity. We disaggregate even our experience data by that to make sure that we're not sort of becoming victims of that same bias and not understanding it by continuing to make sure we're looking at our data and keeping ourselves um, true to what we think is so important in delivering equitable healthcare. 
Let's stay on that for a little bit in terms of what you all at ULA are doing to make sure that you are, like you said, delivering equitable care. How are you all, for lack of a better term, checking your biases outside of disaggregating data, you know, by race and ethnicity? What are some of the other things that you all as an organization are doing? Yeah, I mean, we do a lot of just I guess like training conversation, right? We did it across our whole organization, not sort of clinical versus not. Just if you come to ULA and you're going to be part of our team, we think it's really important that you have a fundamental understanding of racism in healthcare and how it shows up, um, that you have a shared vocabulary about how to sort of talk about and engage in those issues, that you, to become part of our team in the first place, think that it matters and that it's important to have those conversations. Um, then we have a particular platform we work with on sort of systemic or implicit, sorry, bias um, and how it shows up in healthcare settings in particular. Um, and we work with that across our, any patient facing member of our team. So that could be our clinician, that could be our front desk person, that could be a medical assistant, right? Anyone who's gonna have that interaction with the team goes through that training. What we like about it is it sort of takes a understanding of each individual and how they where they sort of are at in their journey assesses that and then customizes work together um, and then we come together as a team to talk about it and i've created spaces particularly for white identifying folks separate from our black identifying providers and so really sort of working through uh, it in those spaces then as a leadership team we've also done sort of separate um, coaching about how to create a more inclusive company because I think it ultimately comes from the top um, and then I think organization we also have like a huge work plan I sort of laugh at the work plan because I think there's this feeling of like I'm just going to check off the boxes and it's not that it's a feeling like the work is never going to be done uh, but that we need to continue to sort of put it there and to put it on our priorities and things that matter and honestly have a wonderful team that holds us accountable to making sure we're doing it. You know, so we've touched on it, what some folks might say are some of the key drivers when we think about maternal health outcomes in the U.S. You know, and in the intro video, we talked about how the U.S. has one of the highest maternal mortality rates of high income nations. But the flip side of that are the near misses, you know, the maternal morbidity, which we don't quite talk about nearly as much. And so I guess I'm also interested outside of um, trust issues or this kind of concept of respectful or disrespectful care, what do you think are some of the other key drivers in our nation's maternal morbidity crisis? So it's interesting on the morbidity side, right? I, I would say like maternal death is like the, uh, the canary in the coal mine because for every like one that is like the worst outcome that you could ever imagine, there's at least a hundred of the severe sort of morbidity events. And then a ton of folks honestly just have a, a pretty terrible experience. And I don't wanna even like discount that last group because I think everyone should have a great experience. People shouldn't walk away from birth with birth trauma. Um, and honestly, if we just focus on maternal mortality, we sort of miss that broader picture uh, that generally women are having a really poor experience. I think only maybe a quarter of women said they have very good or excellent care. So we're, we're failing at every level. I still think even in the sort of severe morbidity space though, we're still talking about a lot of the same issues. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about mortality, but it still is true for morbidity, which is I think there's this feeling like, okay, if you had a maternal death, it must've happened at the hospital, right? Like during labor and delivery. Um, and that's about one in five deaths. So about a third of them actually happened prenatally um, and nearly half happened postpartum. And we have a really poor infrastructure to support women and birthing people during that time. Right? I think most of our focus has been on how do we improve safety on labor and delivery? And that's obviously a key piece of it. 
But if we send women home and we don't check on them again until the six week visit, how do we think we're meaningfully going to change outcomes in that space where you have huge risk for bleeding, for hypertension issues, for cardiac issues, for all of these things that are actually driving a lot of the severe morbidity we see, and we don't have that connection point in that continuity. And some of it's driven by a payment system that doesn't recognize the importance of support. Part of it's driven by, honestly, us still having a really antiquated healthcare system, right? We do the vast majority of prenatal care appointments in this country in person and haven't leveraged technology as a meaningful way to connect with patients in between visits to get more information about how they're doing both physically and mentally and incorporate that into it. And so I think a lot of what we focus on ULA is absolutely you should have a great birth experience, but we should be focusing as much time and energy and attention on prenatal and postpartum care because that's where we're really failing women and where it's showing up in mortality and morbidity and honestly poor experience at large. Absolutely. Let's talk about the business side of ULA. So we're going to sw- we're going to switch gears just a little bit here. And um, I know that you guys raised over $22 million to, ta- to date between your Series A funding and seed funding. So what does that say about the appetite for investors to be included into potential solutions for the maternal health crisis? You know, I think so while it's a lot of money, it's still only a drop in the bucket of most venture capital dollars and where they're gone and where they're allocated. I would say I think there's been more interest in the past few years um, generally about women's health and an appreciation that women not only are like the biggest consumers of healthcare, but they also control most of the dollars, which is they're making decisions for their parents or for their family. Um, And so they sort of matter um, in that very almost like crude business sense. And so I think that has created interest um, on behalf of investors to sort of say, what what should they do here? Um, Should they be involved? Should they place a bet? I think maternal care in itself, a lot of investors are realizing are such an important moment in time to sort of build that relationship with women. If you think they're so valuable because they, you know, they control all of the spend and the, you know, $4.4 trillion healthcare industry, um, you have to find what's the right moment in time actually to build that relationship and engage. And often, you know, maternity care, I'd argue, is sort of the best place to do it. It's, you know, honestly a transformational moment. It's the first time you really deal with healthcare in this country because usually, hopefully, you're healthy until you get pregnant and then are suddenly, um, going to a lot of appointments and, and spending some time at the hospital. Um, and so it's a really unique moment to, to build that. So I think that drives some of the interest. That said, I've talked to many an investor who feel like it's too niche or like the TAM is too small for something in women's health, whether it's maternity or menopause or fertility or, or you sort of name it. And so I think it sort of cuts both ways still. So interesting. Can you contrast what some of the early conversations were like? Were you, you know, were you trying to elicit interest in this and then maybe what the conversations are like now? Has it changed or is it still kind of that same skepticism of this is a niche market? Oh, I think it's for sure changed. But part of it, I I kind of, uh, my co-founder and I went to raise our seed round for this business April of 2020. 
And I don't know what you were doing in April 2020, but most of the world was not going outside. And the idea that we were raising capital for a brick and mortar business was like almost laughable. And I laughed because I think, you know, it really felt like the world shut down, or at least New York City did towards the end of March. Um, and we waited like a full two weeks. We we're like, okay, everything's going to be fine. You know, this is a great time to go out and start conversations. And, you know, it was a slog. Um, I think it was a really hard time to be raising capital. Part of it was, you know, maybe not appreciation of the opportunity women's health and part of it was just a really sort of hard environment to be uh, getting people excited but i think as a result we have amazing investors around the table who are really passionate as much for the business opportunity as for the mission um, and sort of the product that we're creating fast forward to and it probably i think i talked to 70 investors at least 70 conversations at the scene um going to raise our series a i think i had two conversations and so that talks a lot about how the market has changed but also what it means to have data i think people when we were raising money originally for the business in 2020 goes back they had some skepticism of like you know do women really want this like okay the care model sounds great yes it's associated with better outcomes, so fewer C-sections and fewer preterm births and better satisfaction, but like, is the U.S. consumer ready for this? Um, and so to be able to show that our first clinic reached capacity in three months, to be able to show that we had a net promoter score of 94 so that women really loved it, that we had improved outcomes on C-sections, on preterm, on low birth weight, on you sort of name it, really changed the flavor and the tenor of the conversation. And so do you think, um... ULA is attractive to investors? Is it more attractive now that you've been able to change that? Like, is this an attractive business model, do you think? Oh, yeah. I think in healthcare, anytime you can combine three things, you can make a massive business, which is we have consumers with a much better experience, we have better outcomes, and we're doing it at a lower cost. And it's sort of the trifecta of building a really um, sort of defensible, huge business in healthcare. So what's next? Like, what's the what's the next iteration of ULA? Are you all looking to expand? Talk to us a little bit about the future. Yeah, I mean, we there are women who need this great care, uh, and not not just in New York. Although New York has some of the worst outcomes in the country, so there was a, a good reason to start here. So we're going to continue to expand in New York, opening two more clinics here over the next year, um, and then expanding to two new markets also about over the next eighteen months. So excited to continue to take what is working so well and sort of increase access and make sure that other women and birthing people um, are able to get. Um, access to this care and new markets. Um, and then we get to sort of figure out where we go from there. I was gonna say, are there any other innovations, innovations in the maternal health space that you all are really excited about or thinking about integrating into what you all do or that just simply sound promising to you? You know, I think we're always looking for how do we continue to make it better. Um, and so one of the things we're focused a lot on right now is how to better incorporate mental health into our care model. And so one of the things that is so wonderful about midwifery care in the first place is they really take a whole person approach to care. So realizing that it's not just the physical needs, but it's also the emotional needs. Um, and so continuing to integrate that in a more meaningful way um, in our care is something that we're focused on um, going into the beginning of next year. And also there've been a lot of great innovation in that space. We've seen you know two new drugs become available in the postpartum space for depression. Um, and so making sure that we sort of have an approach that takes a both and, which is like, it's great and wonderful to have um, more medications available, uh, but knowing a lot of women have, you know, a variety of needs prenatal and postnatally um, that are mental health related. So building out the right 
community and support and coaching along with access to the right pharmaceuticals is key to creating the right experience there. So excited to, to continue to sort of innovate in that space. Um, and then obviously we'll uh, have more to do after that point. Oh, I feel like you're keeping a little bit of a secret there with that look, but I won't. I won't try to pry too much out of you <laughs> right I now. Of like, what? What is public catch? I was like, it might not be. So I'll, I'll hesitate. Um, I pause. All right. Well, I will go to our final question then before we run out of time, and that is uh, in a single sentence: Is there what's your kind of hope for the future of maternal care? Maybe two sentences. Maybe not a single sentence. Mm -hmm. You know, I hope that all women and birthing people have an experience that is transformative in the best possible way. Absolutely. So we are just about out of time. And I want to say thank you so much for uh, being so generous with your insights, even if you won't share that last secret with me, <laughs> I will say <laughs> we appreciate your time and uh, we're gonna have to leave the conversation right there. Adrian Nickerson, CEO of ULA, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon, take care. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.